The following sermon is brought to you by New Covenant Community Church, a Bible-based church located on Route 62 east of Johnstown, Ohio. To learn about New Covenant Community Church, visit www.new-covenant.org. Again, that is new-covenant.org. Now, enjoy the message. Please be seated in God's house as you're taking your Bibles to the book of Acts, the first chapter, as well as the book of Luke, the first chapter. So the book of Acts and the book of Luke, all in chapter 1. You can take a moment to bookmark those places. The book of Acts is where we will begin in just a moment. I wonder if you're growing in your walk with Jesus. Sometimes I wonder about that as us as a church and and you individually, both everyone that's here and joining us online, are you, are you different this year than you were last year? Do you love him more? Have your affections in your heart been stirred more by what Jesus has done more so now than it was in the past? I hope, I hope that that's true for all of us here. Turning our Bibles, Acts chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1 as well. The Amish people of which we are not far geographically from where many of them live, are a peculiar people. If you were to grow up in an Amish home, you would learn many things like how to do life without electricity and, and how to live life without cars and what it meant to grow your own food. And, and there would be things that would be different in an, in an Amish home that you would learn that if you were in, in a child in any other kind of home that you would not necessarily learn. And one of the things particularly that you would learn if you were to grow up in an Amish home is not just some of those key aspects, just the tactics of life and how things are done, but another key element in most Amish homes is a deep-rooted sense in their purpose, where they came from, why they are the way that they are. The father in an Amish home will commonly around the dinner table tell stories of where their people came from and why it is that they live the way that they live. And, and Amish children typically grow up with this very deep-rooted sense of purpose and meaning, a desire to understand more about it, and they, they're, they're secure in, in who they are and why they are who that they are. And that element, that that strong focal piece of the Amish home has caused some very interesting things. One of which being that their retention rate in the Amish community is usually north of 97% of people born in Amish homes that will remain and continue to be living that Amish lifestyle. 97% retention. Given that number, in conjunction with the size of most Amish families, their population in the past 20 years has doubled. And it's expected to at least double in the next 20 years because of this strong sense of purpose, understanding their roots. It's given them a strength that not many other communities have. In an Amish community, if someone has a barn that burns down at 1 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday, usually by that afternoon, that same time in the afternoon, the following day, there will be a brand new barn sitting in that same spot where the day previously, just 24 hours before, there was a barn that was burning down to the ground. They have a resiliency 
that is different than most people. I saw a funny meme that went around on social media when it, we were like six months into COVID and there was this meme that said, did someone remember to tell the Amish that COVID was a thing? And it's, it's funny because it's probably true that for maybe even months after COVID was a thing that did they even begin to hear about it. They have this insulated way of being that not everyone else has. They have this deep-rooted sense in who they are and why they are who they are. And the book of Acts, it tells us as a church who we are and why we are who we are. It gives us a deep-rooted sense of understanding some of the things of where we've come from and why we've come from those places, why we are the way that they are. If you imagine a tree that has incredibly deep roots, it takes a large windstorm, a very large windstorm, to take down a tree with deep roots. It's very difficult for the wind to topple the tree over in a storm. It's very difficult for a drought to cause a tree not to produce fruit during a drought when those roots are very deep. And we see that same element being true for the Amish community. And I believe that this is why by God's Holy Spirit, that he's leading us to go through the book of Acts in its entirety, that we might have these kinds of deep roots, understanding some of these things of where we've come from and why we are the way that we are, understanding some of these things that will make it such that it's hard for a storm to topple us over, to make it such that it's difficult for a drought to cause us to stop yielding fruit, that we have this deep-rooted sense of our purpose and our being here on this earth. Habakkuk 2 verse 2 says, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. In other words, we ought to be so connected to our past and understanding God's design for the church, to the purpose of the church, how things got started. We ought to understand the stories of those first Christians, like Peter when he preached that Pentecost message. We ought to be so connected to those things that it allows our roots to grow deeper. That we've got this deep-rooted sense. And this is not a scheme to have a 97% retention rate like the Amish do in their communities. To have that same kind of retention rate in this church. That is not at all what this is about. This is about us becoming stronger in this faith. Amen? This is about us becoming more deep-rooted in the things that God has called us to do. So if you're ready to embark on this journey, if you will, say amen. Looking now to Acts chapter 1, verse one where we read and it says the former count i made o theophilus of all that jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he through the holy spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he also presented himself alive after he after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So let's give ourselves some questions that will help get this journey through the book of Acts off the ground. Number one, who is the human pen through which God is speaking this? Who is it that God is using to write the book of Acts? Second question would be, who is this Theophilus character? And third question being, what is the point so far? So answering these questions in order, number one being, who is the human pen through which God is speaking this? And the understanding is that this has been the Apostle Luke. It's understanding that Luke was the person who was the pen through which God used to write the book of Acts. And you say, well, Pastor Ben, how is it that we know it was Luke? 
And the answers that I would give you is, number one, it's actually been simply passed down through the ages of the church. It was always understood that it was Luke who wrote the book of Acts, and it was passed down from one generation of Christians to the next, to the next, to the next, all the way down to us, and there's been this understanding and told down through the generations that it was Luke who wrote that God used to write the book of Acts. But let's say that wasn't the case. Let's say that you were just emerged onto the earth and that you parachuted onto the earth and somebody handed you a bible and you wanted to understand who it was that wrote the book of acts you would have some other things to go on as well by this mentioning of this theophilus character this theophilus character is only mentioned twice in the bible once here in acts 1 and once again in luke 1 and we know without a doubt that it was luke who wrote the gospel of luke and he mentions this theophilus character greets him at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, and also mentions him again, greets him again here at the beginning of Acts chapter 1. So it makes it see that this person who wrote the Gospel of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And we also know that if you were to read and study the book of Luke and then read and study the book of Acts, you would find that stylistically it is almost identical. The same human pen through which God chose to write the Gospel of Luke, he also chose to write the Acts the book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles. So we understand the writer to be Luke. If you understand that, say amen. Second question, who is this Theophilus character? We don't know much about this Theophilus character, but what we do know is that his name is a Greek name, meaning loved by God. That's what that name Theophilus means. We also know that he knew Luke, at least to some degree. Luke greets him both in both of these things that God used Luke to write. And those are the things that we know for certain, but there's some things that we may be, be able to assume about Theophilus based on some other things that we do know. Uh, we know that Luke was a doctor, scripturally, we know that. And one of the other pieces of scripture that God used Paul to write, it references him as the physician Luke. We know that this man whom God used to write this portion of scripture was indeed a doctor. And he was not just a doctor, but he was also a very educated doctor. Uh, even to this very day, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are seen as for, by historians to, to be the greatest use of Greek ever. In other words, Luke was extraordinarily, extraordinarily educated and very skilled in the language of Greek. He was a very good writer. He was very much an educated man from him being a doctor that we know and also this excellent use of Greek that historians see even to this day. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts blows out everything else out of the water of historical writings in Greek. They are the finest portions of Greek ever seen, ever seen by historians. Now what we can assume from this, this Luke character greeting this Theophilus character, we can probably assume that the crowd in which Luke ran was probably that of like many doctors today. He probably knew some important people. He probably knew some rich people. We don't know that for certain, but we could assume that that is probably so of Theophilus. We can also understand that the way in which Luke greets this Theophilus character, both here by saying the former account I made, O Theophilus, and as we'll see in a moment in Luke chapter 1, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. This was the way back then in which people would greet people of very high authority, usually political leaders, usually people of much influence. Now, Luke could have been just a nice guy and 
Theophilus could have been some poor guy that didn't mean anything to anybody and he was just being nice to him and greeting him in that way. That's possible. But, but I think as best we can tell, based on who we know Luke to be, that very likely this Theophilus character was someone of importance, someone of influence. Perhaps he was wealthy. We don't know for sure, but we can make those estimations of thinking about who Theophilus was. And the third question this morning that we'll look at there for this beginning piece of text is, what is the point thus far? Which I think is revealed when you look at the things that Luke referenced happening after the resurrection but before the ascension. It says that he had given commandments. Let all God's children here say, given commandments. To the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive. Everyone say alive. After his suffering by many infallible proofs. Everyone say infallible. Infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. In other words, this man, who we believe to be Luke, a doctor, someone of influence, probably rich, very educated, very smart individual, is saying that this man named Jesus, I am convinced of him. I'm convinced that he was dead. I'm convinced that he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. I'm convinced of it. And if you turn over in your Bibles now to Luke chapter 1, you see this same type of temperature that he writes these things. He's also writing, greeting this Theophilus character. But I want you to hear again the certainty through which Luke is writing these things. Luke chapter 1 verse 1. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had a perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write to you an orderly count, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty, everyone say certainty, certainty of those things which you were instructed i believe that luke was convinced of this this doctor this likely wealthy this influential person is convinced of this person named jesus so when you ask yourself the question what are the roots of our christian faith when you rewind back to the very beginning of this book that God gives us in his word to describe to us the birth of the church and where we've come from and why we're here and all these things, you can say, what, what are the things that we are to go through this life connected to, understanding, knowledge of, here's where I came from, here's why I am the way today, here's the mission that God has given me. What are we supposed to understand from that? It is one of understanding that this rich doctor was a man convinced of this person named Jesus, this educated, influential man was convinced of it and convinced of it fully. So our first point this morning of asking ourselves, what are the roots of this Christian faith? The answer or point number one would be this, glories beyond that of human intellect. Glories beyond that of human intellect. What Luke's process of thinking was not is, I'm the physician and let me explain to you how it was about that he, Jesus, this man that was dead, came alive again. Jesus says he showed himself alive and there were many infallible proofs. 
This was beyond his training as a doctor. This was beyond his intellect as someone to figure out and have a human explanation for things. Right out of the gate, this man, who we believe to be Luke, that God used to write this book of Acts, says it's beyond that of human intellect. There's a glory beyond that. It was not his plan to give a humanistic doctor explanation as to why it was that this man named Jesus was dead and now alive again. He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. If you're still with me, say yes. Now this flies in the face, even to this day, this kind of thinking of a doctor, a man educated, submitting to the truth that there's glories beyond that of what the human can understand and the dead man does live again and his name is Jesus. This flies in the face even today of human intellect that people challenge this very day. Things like the virgin birth. You can't explain that with human intellect. There's a glory beyond that of human intellect of how God brings that about. Jonah being swallowed by that great fish that God had prepared. You can't, you can't describe that with your brain. I don't care how smart you are. You can't describe that with human intellect. There is a glory beyond that of human intellect that causes all of that to come about. Scripture, something commonly refuted in today's world. That God could take sinful beings to create this perfect thing over the course of thousands of years from different continents, writers on different continents, and then produce this harmonious word of all these books together describing what it is that God has done and who he is. You can't come up with a rationale for that in human intellect. There's a glory beyond that of human, of human intellect. Sanctification, the process through which God takes someone when they become a believer to transform them into more like his son. I've even had pastors that will call me and tell me that because I still preach holiness, I still believe that we, are, we ought to strive for holiness as Jesus is holy. If you believe that, say amen. I still believe that when, when Jesus changes the heart of someone that there will be fruit some slower than others, I understand that, but, but that when God changes the heart, that there will be true repentance, there will be true fruit that comes forth from that. And there's this notion in today, because it doesn't make any sense to the world as to why you could take someone and then all of a sudden they've got new desires. You can't explain that. How do you, the world cannot explain the young man who picks up his battle against pornography. The, the world just says, go for it. Enjoy the pleasures of it. But the world does not understand a young man that then comes to know Jesus and then pick up his fight against it and walk the arduous battle of fighting against that wickedness. The world doesn't understand that, but there's a glory beyond that of the human understanding. A glory beyond that of the human intellect that the world does not, is incapable of understanding. And people come about with these things that I call truth band-aids. A truth band-aid of human intellect where they see something that they can't, they haven't submitted to the glory that's beyond them. And they come up with a humanistic explanation for things like Mary really wasn't a virgin. That was just a piece of the story. The story of Jonah and the big fish didn't really happen. That was just a fictional story that, that illustrated. It was like a parable. It didn't actually happen. It's a band-aid put over the thing that they haven't submitted to the glory that is over that thing that is beyond their human intellect. Scripture. 
They apply it to that as well. They haven't submitted the truth that, that this God could ordain this thing to be complete and perfect without any kind of error. So they say, well, it's, it has been changed to make it a harmonious thing. No, God wrote it that way. That was his intention. It was his plan to make his word come about in that way. There's this human band-aid of this truth band-aid of human explanation. And I believe with all my heart that this is exactly what Charles Darwin did. He had eyes to see creation. From what I understand, he understood creation as the science portion of it pretty well. But he had not submitted that there would be a glory that would go beyond that of his own human intellect to understand that God is the maker of heaven and earth. If you believe that this morning, say yes. He didn't have the submissiveness he needed to see that glory beyond that of his human intellect. So what did he do? He built this truth band-aid of human explanation called evolution that he stuck over it rather than submitting that an almighty God had indeed made the heavens and the earth and I believe with all my heart that this is why perhaps God has said as he said there in first Corinthians 2 verse 14 it says but the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned the world will not understand when the young man, the Christian, takes up his fight against pornography. The world will not understand when gatherings of believers come together regardless of what kind of upheaval is in the world and what kind of pandemics come about. They just say close the church. They don't understand why we must gather. They don't, they're un incapable, biblically discerning, they, they're incapable of understanding some of these things. They're a natural man. They don't understand these things. They don't understand the songs that we sing of redemption and grace and the joy and humility. We sing songs about the joy that we find in being humbled. The world doesn't understand that. They are incapable of understanding that. The world does not understand the James Coates and the Arthur Pulaskis who are the Canadian pastors that got arrested when they continued on having a leading a biblical church throughout COVID. And, and, the, and the world just says, shut the church down, but they couldn't, they wouldn't. They're different. Their roots were different than that. Their roots were different than just having this intellect that says go along with everything else. They were kind of like that Dr. Luke was when he says, yes, I'm a doctor. Yes, I'm educated. But, but I believe that this man who was dead showed himself alive with many infallible proofs, not trying to create this truth band-aid of human intellect. There's a glory beyond that of human intellect. If you're still with me, say yes. In case you haven't been able to pick up what I'm putting down or smell what I'm stepping in this morning yet so far, let me describe it to you this way. Um, one of the dumbest sports that I used to think was like the dumbest sport ever is curling. You know what curl, raise your hand if you know what curling is. Okay, most of us, okay, it's that sport that you see on the Winter Olympics where they take the weight thing and there's the person that slides it across the ice. And then there's the people in front of them with those little things that resemble push brooms. And they're just scraping the ice, scraping the ice, scraping the ice, scraping the ice. And they just look foolish. If you like curling, I need to pray for you because there's something wrong with you. But it's like, they're just... But you know what? They don't care. They don't give a rip that I think they look foolish. Those folks are laser focused. I mean, if you've ever seen the eyes of that person when they're getting ready to slide that thing across the ice, I mean, it's like a golden retriever getting ready to chase a ball. They are laser focused. They are on it. 
And they scrape those little brushes. I don't even know if it's probably offensive to call them brushes, but they look like brushes to me. They are laser focused on that thing and they are doing it with every ounce of gusto that they've got. And the reason that I think it looks foolish is because there are some things going on in that sport that I don't see nor understand. The thing that I don't see and understand is that there's actually a complete science behind how they brush the ice with the brushes. And there's a complete thing that is going on I don't understand of when they brush the ice this way, it can get the weight to turn on the ice. When they brush the ice this way, it gets the weight to slow down. When they brush the ice this way, it gets it to speed up. There's these things about this curling sport I don't understand and I don't get. You might say there's a glory of that thing that's beyond my foolish intellect, not understanding what's all going on there. But they don't care. They practice their curling with that kind of laser focus. So here's what I'm preaching to you this morning, church. We ought to have that same kind of focus. The world is not going to understand the things that we're doing because there's things going on that they don't see, nor do they understand. So what? We ought to have laser focus on what it is that God has given us to do. If you understand it now, say amen. We ought to be focused on this. We ought to move forward. The world will not understand. They're incapable of understanding. Do we preach to the world? Yes. Do we fulfill the Great Commission? Absolutely. But we do not expect a hellbound world to understand us. There will be things that are beyond that of human intellect, glories beyond it. Now, if you would, please look to verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. And being assembled together with them, He commanded, Jesus commanded, everyone say the word commanded. Commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And as best I can tell, church, that's the disciples asking Jesus, Jesus, when this Holy Spirit that you're going to baptize us in, when that happens, when that occurs, is that going to be the time in which you restore, get rid of this Roman tyrannical government that's here and restore Israel to the kingdom to Israel? To which then Jesus says, verse 7, And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Everyone say authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So if you were to take this text and zoom out from it very far, as far as you can to see the the overarching picture of what's happening here at this time, Jesus is saying to his followers, stay in a particular place, and while you're in that particular place, I want you to do this particular thing, until I bring about the particular thing that I'm bringing about in the Father's timing. I'm commanding you to do this thing, and I want you to do those things until the Father brings about what it is that is in His timing. Which, in this specific example, the particular place in which they were to stay was Jerusalem. The particular thing that they were to do while in Jerusalem was to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the particular thing that was coming was the Holy Spirit that was going to be about in the Father's timing, Jesus says. And I just think it's awesome. This is where I just kind of wig out as a child of God because I see God's glory in all this is that when you, when you zoom out this far to see the overarching thing that God is telling his followers to do in this, and then you look at all of us today and the, the command really hasn't changed. The, 
The particulars of it have changed, but the overarching principle has not. Jesus said to his followers, stay in this particular place. What is it that he has called us to do? To stay in this particular place called the world in which we find ourselves. And we're not just twiddling our thumbs while we're here. They were commanded to wait for the Holy Spirit. You and I, while we're waiting in this particular place, we are called particularly to preach, to love our neighbor, to look for the coming of Jesus. And then this thing that was coming about for them was the Holy Spirit, but for us it's the return of Jesus Christ that we are all waiting on. So this principle, I hope you see in God's Word, behind it, the author being God himself who has not changed, and how you see these patterns pop up for his followers. Now, if you were to zoom in on this text, looking closer at those words that we all repeated, and we can see what it is that God has specifically for us this morning. He used the word there in the beginning of verse 4, the word commanded, which is the Greek word peringaline, as best I know how to pronounce it. And this command, this peringaline, is the word that would be used when a military commander were to give out a set of orders. That's the, what the word means there to command, and which is no surprise. That's pretty much what it means in the, in the English language as well. And then you move further down there to the second part of verse 7, and he used the word authority. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. This word, the Greek word exousia, is the ranking or of headship in his directive. So this authority word that he used, it was the same type of word that was used to describe the role, the rank of a military leader. What Jesus was not to the first followers, the first part of the church, the people that he was speaking to, what Jesus was not was a weekend activity. Jesus was not a piece of religiosity sprinkling onto something else. He was the command. He was the authority. That is what he was to the early church. And I know sometimes we will throw around this word, this phrase, the early church, but I want us to remember that we are that church. We are that church. There were obviously the church that was in that time frame, but that same, if you look at the scale of redemptive history, the church is just the church. And this thing that Jesus has become for many in our day is not what he was when he described these things of command and authority. So when you look at the roots of our faith and where we come from and how we go through this life, when you ask that question of what should our roots be, it is one, second point this morning, an authority beyond that of human power. An authority beyond that of human power. Jesus says, these are the things I've commanded you. Stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to us today, stay on this earth and do the things I've commanded you to preach the gospel, to love your neighbor, to fulfill the great commission. And then it's in the Father's authority to bring out the times that the Father has placed it inside his own authority to bring about these things that I will be bringing the Holy Spirit to those people then and the return of Jesus, which you and I are waiting on this very moment. It involves an authority of these things. So not only does the life of the Christian involve the glories beyond that of our own intellect, we will not, the world will not understand the things we do. There's things going on like the scraping of those brushes. They will, they will not understand. They don't see with clarity why it is the way that we are. But it involves also an authority that is beyond that of human power. That's why the world hates people like the James Coates and the Arthur Pulaski's. 
who are boldly leading churches that, that are not bowing down. They've given their allegiance to that of another. This authority that's beyond human power, it butts heads. There's this competing for power. People want it, but God says it is mine to have. And his followers, Christ followers that have seen his love and seen his grace and won us by his awesome cross that he has accomplished for us, he has won us. His goodness has brought us to this place where we have given our allegiance to him. And tyrannical governments that want that worship to be pointed to them, they don't like the fact that believers like them, like the Juan Riscos, who was that sandwich shop and owner in Chicago who used to be a homosexual, then met Jesus. His life was changed, and he was a Christian, and he, he would not bow to the pressures around him. The, the world hates those people They're, because not only are they themselves saying, my allegiance is to that of Christ, but they're also leading a bunch of people to do the same thing. And it's kind of interesting when you note the scripture that if you really just did what the word of God said, it would, be, it would create the Christian who is obedient to the word of God would become this amazing, amazing citizen. But people, tyrannical people, don't really care about that. They just want the submission of that person. And the world hates the people that are leading others in this authority that is beyond that of human power and soon to be not just the James Coates not just the Arthur Pulaski's not just the Juan Riscos but but any gospel preacher that preaches that our allegiance ought to be to Christ and to Christ alone if you believe that say amen so our roots are one of having submitted to a power that's greater than a human power and I just wonder if you have submitted to that kind of authority this morning did you know that the Queen of England actually has no real power? Most of us probably had her in our brains in a certain place of thinking that she like ruled all of England and all these things. Her role is actually one that's completely customary. She's actually not even supposed to vote. She has no power to veto anything, although she's in a palace and people throw her parades every once in a while and she wears the fancy hats. But her role is simply one that is customary. And she has no real power. And I just wonder how many people have done that with Christ. They put him in fancy buildings like churches and throw him a parade every once in a while and sprinkle a little Jesus on top of something every once in a while, but, but they've not given Jesus the power to veto their plans and to veto their schedule and to submit to that authority that's beyond that of our own human power that we are hungry, our sinful hearts are hungry to express over our lives. I wonder sometimes, for the disciples, when Jesus first spoke these words, he was directing them where they went, what it was that they did when they went where they went, how long they were there, the purpose for which why they were there, and what they did with that fulfilled purpose. Those were all things commanded of Christ, directed of the timing of the Father. What I would love, church and dear friends, this morning, I, when people in this community drive past New Covenant Community Church, the last thing that I ever, ever would ever want someone to ever think to themselves is, that's Pastor Ben's church. I don't really want people thinking that. I, I, I'm sure people do, but, but what I would love, church, if I just share my heart with you this morning, what I would really love for people to be able to say when they drive past down on 62 and they see that church in the middle of the cornfield what i would love more than anything church for when people in the community even people in our own church people that have visited with us for them to be able to drive by this church and say that's a people who has submitted to an authority that's beyond them those are jesus people in that building in that church i don't even really want them to know my name i want them to know 
the name of this Savior, that we serve, and that we have submitted to this glory that is beyond that of our own intellect and that we don't try to stick these band-aids on things so that our minds can digest things easier. That people could drive by and say, those are people that understand the glory of God. Those are people, they have submitted to Christ above all else. If you'd like to see that happen with me, say yes. Now if you sit, look to verse 9 as we continue on this morning. It says, now when he, Jesus, had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said to them, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Boy, if you're looking forward to that day, look to your neighbor and say yes. Looking forward to that day, church. Listen to me. Just in case you've forgotten, dear friends, brothers and sisters, listen to me. In case you have forgotten the plan that you are a part of this morning. You're a part of this plan of creation that God made. All things in six days and on the seventh he rested. You're a part of the plan when Adam and Eve fell and in that first God walks on the scene. They had just sinned. And then the first messianic prophecy ever, God says, there's coming one whom the devil will bruise the heel of, but that one will also crush the head of this enemy. That awesome prophecy that God said of His own Son that would come to save us. You're part of that plan this morning. You're part of the plan that He has this timeline of redemptive history. You are a part of that plan. All of Scripture that reveals to us God's nature, both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament as we see who God God is your part of that plan the mission that he has given the church to go and to preach the gospel the birth pains that this earth is in right now as things get crazier and crazier that we are experiencing gas is 315 a gallon i really hate that especially when you drive an f-150 truck you're seeing the birth pains of the world and you're seeing all these things we're part of that plan that god has the end times and the return of jesus and the thousand year reign and the new heaven and the new earth that is the plan that we are part of dear friends don't forget that when you come into church it's not just another day You're part of a plan that's something so much bigger than you could ever possibly imagine. We are in the middle of that story. When those angels stood on the side of that mountain and those men in white apparel, who I believe were angels, and they look out and they say, Men of Galilee, why are you standing and looking up? Don't you know that this same Jesus, in the same way that you saw him come up, he's going to be coming back down? If if, if you could have, if, if God's plan of redemptive history was one sentence, if, let's say you had to fit it into one sentence and you get to the part in the sentence where it says, and the angels said that Jesus was going to come back in the same way. And then you put a comma there. And I'll go this way so I can be on the same way you guys are. Comma. It's like everything after that sentence, we're there. That's where we are right now. We're in the middle of this whole story. We're right there. So not only does this life of as a Christian involve these roots that we understand of glories being beyond that of our own intellect and an authority that we submit to that is beyond every other human authority, but lastly this morning it involves a plan beyond that of human orchestration. A plan beyond that of human orchestration. And those are fancy seminary type words. If, If you and I were out knee-deep in cattle manure like I was yesterday, I'd look at you and say, you can't make this up. You can't make up what God has done, this plan that is so beyond anything that a human could have conceived. It is beyond that. 
It is completely beyond that, which is why I kind of chuckle, and I hope you pay attention here because you'll see how all this fits together. It makes me kind of chuckle when you hear people say things like, the Bible was just made up. And I think to myself, what part would you have made up? It, let's say you were trying to make a cult. I mean, let's say that we all got together on a Wednesday evening and said, let's have a class on how to start a cult. Wouldn't that be an interesting meeting? What if we did that? You know what we would never ever put if we were trying to start a cult? We would never put the plagues in Egypt that God is expressing His power and judgment. We would never put that. You would never put the parting of the Red Sea. You would never put things that are just completely inconceivable to the human. You would never put a virgin birth in that story. If you were trying to gain followers, you wouldn't put those kinds of things. That You wouldn't put Jonah in there. You wouldn't put salvation for sure of a God who is perfect, being crucified on a cross for the people that he loved, although he owed them nothing, although their hearts were bent against God. You wouldn't put that in there. You certainly would not put the ascension and the return of Christ. But, but why are those things in there? Because why, why is this plan beyond that of human orchestrations? Because there are glories inside of it that are beyond that of human intellect. You would certainly never put the persecution that the disciples faced. If you were trying to start a cult, you would never, ever, ever, ever put in there the times that Paul and Peter got beat. You wouldn't put those things in there. But the reason that that plan, the reason that happened, the reason that there's this plan beyond that of human orchestration is because there is an authority that is beyond that of human power. And when Peter and Paul and any other believer that has faced persecution, they have met that kind of authority. They've been won by the love of God and they see that he is the only thing worthy to be praised, the only thing worthy to be worshipped. They give their allegiance to that of another, not of a human leader. And it brings about these things in this plan that is beyond anything we can imagine, like people being beat and murdered for their faith because there's an authority beyond that of human power. So the question I want to leave us all with this morning is, are you in this plan because I, I don't have a prosperity gospel message to preach to you this morning, nor do I ever. I don't. But I do know that this plan of God is a good one. Trials, yes. But a good plan that God has won for all who repent and follow him. Would you stand with me as we bow our heads to pray? Jesus, you have been faithful to us. God, as we embark on this journey of seeking to see what it is that your word says about how we began as a people, I pray that you would bless that process, make us so connected to our purpose, to our understanding of where we came from, such that when we pull into this parking lot, when we gather in our homes together, when the church meets, that it's not just a thing to do on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, but that it is indeed an understanding of where we've come from so that we know our roots, so that when the storms may come, the roots hold us down, so that when the droughts come, the roots still allow us to provide fruit because we know where we've come. We know what's coming. We know where we're going. 
make these things plain to us, Lord. I pray that it would become plain in every heart of every person at New Covenant Community Church like it was in Habakkuk 2, verse 2, that we might be able to run and know these roots. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all the church says, we're going to be taking up our offering while we have this time of invitation and singing. So gentlemen, you can prepare to take up the morning tithe and offering. If you need to prepare that, do that now. We'll be taking up this offering as we sing together.